Welcome to episode 15 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. If we had a cure for cancer that was 80% effective, there would be no question. But unfortunately, people are really scared of psychedelics, even though the data is is showing us that they're safe and non-toxic and non-addictive when used correctly. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Dr. Alana Roy about psychedelic-assisted therapy. Dr. Roy is the National Practice Manager of Mind Medicine Australia. Psychedelics are, of course, a class of drug that include LSD, MDMA, which is one of the key ingredients in ecstasy, and psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms. These drugs are currently illegal in Australia, so... Before we launch into this conversation, we want to make it really clear that neither TalkLink nor Mind Medicine Australia is condoning the use of illegal drugs. That's actually the point of this whole conversation. One of the key missions of Mind Medicine Australia, and a growing number of researchers around the world actually, is supporting clinical research and working towards regulatory approved and evidence-based psychedelic assisted therapy. Actually really interesting stuff. In fact, someone once told me personally that using psychedelics is like brain surgery. In the right time and place, it can be life-saving, but it's probably not the kind of thing you want to do on a dance floor. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. If you'd like to ask Dr. Roy a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. Also, just a little heads up that Dr. Roy has a pet French bulldog at her feet who uh, accompanied us through this interview and was happily snoring in the background. So if you hear some low growling noises, that's her dog um, snoring away. Okay. Let's dive in. So we're a not-for-profit charity and our, I guess our whole reason for, for starting is to um, promote the clinical use of psychedelic medicines, particularly MDMA and psilocybin, to help alleviate mental illness and to make these medicines as accessible as possible for Australian population. Can you maybe talk a little bit about where we are right now in Australia and where Mind Medicine would like to see Australia transition to? So at the moment, we've just gone through a wide-scale public consultation with the TGA. People from all around Australia have written a submission in response to Mind Medicine formally requesting that these medicines, MDMA and psilocybin, be removed from the Schedule 9 classification, which means that they're illicit, they're illegal and of no therapeutic benefit. And what we know from the trials around the world done by MAPS is that these medicines are therapeutic, they're non-toxic, safe and and non-addictive when they're used in a therapeutic setting. That's why they've been granted breakthrough therapeutic status in America. What my medicine has asked is for for the medicines to move to Schedule 8, which means that they're regulated and used for, for therapy. Yeah, look, I find it all a bit bizarre, to be honest. These compounds have gone from like being classified as drugs that have no medicinal value to all of a sudden getting breakthrough status. And now there's this, you know, buzz in the research world as everyone's trying to get in on the action. And it's not like these are new drugs though, right? Like, um, wasn't LSD discovered in the thirties and yes, that's right. wasn't there already like over a thousand scientific papers written about LSD and other psychedelics, potent potential in mental health. Like we understood these things, um, you know, what's that like 50, 60 years ago. So what's changed for the switch to flip so drastically? 
Well, a lot's happened. You know, historically, these medicines were used and they were used, you know, in the 50s and 60s for therapeutic research, for clinical trials, for couples therapy. And then due to the, the Vietnam War and the counterculture that emerged during that time, there was really harsh uh, prohibition against against medicines because it was seen as there was a connection between people using these medicines and not wanting to participate in, in war. So a lot of a lot of these medicines were shut down, uh, d- despite the science suggesting that they were really effective. So that slowed down the research for for decades, which was you know absolutely atrocious for for mental health and for human rights, people's access to to treatments that work. And so now, um, you know, particularly over the last twenty and ten years, there's been over a hundred clinical trials. So you know, really respected universities from all around the world uh, are researching these medicines and, and other medicines. And when it's done in, in this safe, controlled clinical environment, they're finding that it's really effective. So that's one thing. I think there's there's, there's so much suffering, there's, there's so much mental illness, and the, the current treatments we have are really limited in, in psychiatry. You know, antidepressants, well, although they can be helpful, uh, overall there's about a 30% remission rate and that's that's not enough it, it, they tend to just act as a band-aid and hold the symptoms without um treating it and, and, and getting that you know full remission so i think the world's ready for new innovation because of the suffering we need yeah more solutions so you talked about the application of psilocybin specifically for depression um does it work and how well does it work yeah so the the data that's coming out of MAPS is suggesting that with two or three dosed sessions as well as psychotherapy, people are showing remission rates up to 80% a year later, which is really significant. <laughs> that's, an, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So we don't, we, that's why they've been granted breakthrough therapeutic status because it's, it's showing rates that are superior to current treatments. Yeah, amazing. And... You know, it's, it's incredible, as I say to people, if we, if we had a cure for cancer that was 80% effective, there would be no question about it. It would, you know, it would be released, particularly stage three clinical trials. But unfortunately, due to the stigma and the fear and the miseducation for the general population, including mental health professionals, people are really scared of psychedelics, even though the data is, is showing us that they're, they're safe and non-toxic and non-addictive when used correctly. You talked about MDMA um, in application for post-traumatic stress. Uh, what do the numbers tell us about its efficacy? So it's similar. Yeah, really? Similar results are coming out. Yeah. There's, there's an incredible uh, fact sheet that we can, we can promote through, through this podcast or send out to some of your viewers that has the effect sizes comparing antidepressants and then PTSD as well as depression and it and it shows the varying levels of statistical significance and it's it's incredible so hopefully we can get that to your viewers so it's you can actually visually visually see the data around this yeah of course we'll we'll put that in the show notes for sure uh now when we talk about psychedelics of course there's a lot of different compounds that fall into that uh dmt uh, is one that's currently being discussed a lot in the u.s um lysergic acid or lsd um, is, is another. Why has Mind Medicine Australia decided to focus on psilocybin and MDMA specifically 
And have you thought about some of these other um, medicines and do they help different conditions? So we've, we've chosen MDMA and psilocybin purely because the protocols have been designed and been trialled and tested through, through MAPS and through the phase three trials. So we know that we can bring these medicines to Australia without having to replicate the trials again. We don't want to uh, delay treatment any further. So that's why we're, we're focusing all our attention on, on those two medicines because they work, we know they're effective and we can, you know, we can get this started now. Um, that's not to say that there won't be additional medicine that we focus on because the, you know, the research is building all around the world. And my, my service, the, the psychological service, we, we do a lot of integration work with people who are uh, using medicines recreationally, whether that's um, you know, going overseas and actually doing it legally or, you know, unfortunately, they're illegally in Australia. But we, we need to be able to provide them support and education, harm minimization services. So a lot of my clients have experiences with ayahuasca, San Pedro, which is the cactus, ibogaine, ketamine, LSD. Yeah, so um, although that's not my medicine strategic focus at the moment, the, my actual clinical services do, do work with people who are using those medicines. So there's a lot in there I want to unpack. Let's start with the whole recreational versus therapeutic-assisted um, psychedelic use. Could you maybe walk us through a typical example of what a psychedelic-assisted therapy session may look like for someone uh, and, and just help our listeners get a bit of a sense for what they could potentially expect if they would qualify for some of the therapy? So I'll use MDMA as an example. For someone to be eligible to have an MDMA session, they need to have a diagnosis of PTSD and a history of multiple treatments that haven't worked. So like a evidence and a case history that's, that shows them that they uh, have tried many, many treatments that hasn't worked. And this is, this is why they need this, this uh, medicine. They then engage a psychiatrist and, and two guides or uh, you know, another medical professional who make, make sure that they are screened for uh, other, other conditions that might complicate the session, such as you know, heart condition or psychosis, mania, bipolar. And once, once they meet the criteria and the person's safe, they have a, a, like a safe clinical profile, they then begin the preparation sessions. And that's the, the psychotherapy component, which is you know, really crucial for this work that they develop you know, connection and a rapport with the therapist and set their intentions and prepare them for the psychedelic experience. So they have a, cu a couple of those sessions and then they have uh, the dosed session, which occurs in a clinical setting, but it can be, um, I guess, the, the client's needs can be integrated into that room. So if they're, if they're spiritual or they want you know, an altar or candles or music, you know, it can be, designed in a way that supports their, their individual needs. So on the day, the medical practitioner provides the medicine and then they're on standby if anything is needed from a medical point of view. And then there's the two, the two guides which are trained in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And it typically lasts about eight hours, the medicine, and then they are provided integration support afterwards. So it might be potentially the next day and then subsequent sessions after where they unpack the experience of one through. So that's very different from the recreational setting, obviously. Uh, 
people typically, you know, when they're using recreationally, they don't have intention. They're not necessarily using the medicine to explore trauma and, you know, to in the, in the clinical setting, people use an eye, eye shield and close their eyes and, and go deep, deep within. Whereas typically in a recreational sense, people are partying with friends, they're, you know, at clubs or, you know, they're at festivals. It's a very different intention and very different outcomes. Yeah. So in preparation for our conversation, I got Michael um, Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And um, I don't, have you read it? Or have you come across it? Yeah, about a year ago. I, I should read it again. Oh, it was so insightful. And, and he recounts his personal experience of getting psychedelic assisted therapy. And he walks the readers through exactly what you've described. Um, and he, he actually tries several different compounds in different contexts. Um, and, and it was interesting to me how it differs from a recreational use um, because it's there's so much psychological preparation beforehand and it's so considered. And then there's the actual event um, and, and that's almost a footnote in the experience because the, the bulk of the work is done beforehand and afterhand. And that was a surprise to me. Is that consistent with the training that you're offering at Mind Medicine Australia? And I guess mining the insight and the lessons that people gain from their, um, their altered states? I think all of those components are really important. The, the assessment, the preparation, the dose session and the integration. But there's, there's a, a quote that I love um, that says, after enlightenment comes the laundry. It's a Zen <laughs> proverb. So, you know, people can have that, that peak experience, which is incredible, but then they have to go home and do the laundry and take their kids to school and get back to the, a job they potentially hate. So, yeah, it's, it's really important that all those pieces are there, the, the, the prep, the, the, the dose session, and then how to, how to you know, bring those pearls back from that psychedelic experience and, and integrate it into your personality, into, into your life in a meaningful way. Well, a lot of people hold the view that using a psychedelic drug will potentially make you go crazy or, you know, induce psychosis or some kind of um, schizophrenia. Is there any truth in that? Well, when it's when people are screened through the clinical trials, they're screened, screened for an, an immediate history of psychosis, bipolar mania, as well as a family history. So they won't actually be included in the trials if they have those components because there is potential for more vulnerability and, and a higher risk profile if someone has a, a psychotic process so that from the clinical trial point of view there has been no um, significant adverse effects of the psychedelic dose session that's why they've been granted breakthrough therapeutic status however you know in a recreational sense if a young young person you know potentially has emerging psychosis happening in the background goes and does mushrooms, you know, in in with friends at a at a rave, you know, it could it could trigger something that was lying dormant already. And although it's it, there's there's very limited data to suggest that this does occur, on a whole, these medicines are very safe, non toxic, and non addictive. But like like any medicine, it needs to be used, you know, properly with with a container to support the person. Um, and you know, when we talk about psychedelics, make people feel crazy. In the research, particularly with psilocybin around ego death, the more people felt, I guess, you know, crazy, dissolved in another planet, you know, complete loss of sense of self, the, 
the more likely they were to report, um, you know, relief from depression and subjective, you know, joy and connection afterwards. So ad the adverse effects in the moment, in the peak, in the peak session of um, fear and feeling crazy often equates to, you know, positive outcomes in the trials, but they don't, they don't last. It's, it's during the, the peak experience of, of the psychedelic session the distress and then through integration they're able to make meaning of that and often a lot of uh you know the neuroscience supports that there's incredible effects going on in the brain during those experiences so the distress of feeling out of control or like your body's dissolving that's momentary in the peak of the event and then afterwards you're saying the science is telling us that um people experience a, a lessening of depressive symptoms Yes. So huh. yeah, ego death is really correlated with the default mode network in the brain shutting down and then other pathways in the brain lighting up and the person's sense of self you know, dissolving their ruminations, their personality structures, the, the things that make us cling, cling to control, to depression through really rigid ways of being when that's targeted and, you know, subjectively experienced often as an ego death, it can it can be frightening, be very frightening. But the the results are suggesting that is what is actually helping reboot the brain and giving that person a sense of uh, release and and freedom from their depression. That's quite counterintuitive um, that a tense moment or a tense experience could have such positive effects afterwards. And I guess if I'm, if, you know, if, if I'm following sort of how you've walked us through the experience, I guess a intense psychedelic experience could be, could be quite confronting to someone, but perhaps no less than another major event in their life, like the the death of a significant person or um, a, a major life transition. And um, I, I I imagine that any one of those events, including a um, a psychotropic experience could be something that pushes someone over the edge when they're already you know precariously balanced and they may have um, some um, overarching mental challenges is that do you think that's a fair read on on the conversation about whether or not uh, a trip could make you tip over the edge well from a, from a clinical point of view, when I talk to my clients as they're preparing for their SASB applications, we talk about the, the risk. We talk about the potential distress they're feeling. And, you know, and they look me in the eyes and they say, Alana, I've been suffering depression for 20 years. Like I've suffered deeply. I know, I know suffering. I know pain. I know suicidal thinking. You know, they, they're almost like, stop, stop protecting me because I know suffering, let me have this experience. And um, I think that's, that's, that's incredible when, when they're actually given the, the container, you know, the safe container with the therapists, with the preparation, with the music, and they're actually given the opportunity to, to face that trauma um, in a very cathartic and, and healing way. This is where, you know, the benefits are outweighing the risks and that's what the data is showing. Yeah. Amazing. However, in a recreational sense, of course, if someone has mental illness, you know, is suicidal and you know, has no support and is really isolated and they do psilocybin in an uncontrolled setting, it could be really distressing. And that's why I've set up the psych services integration support so that 
anyone in the community, whether they've done it illegally, can access really high quality support so that we can get in there really early to help them ground and help them um, feel connected and, yeah, bring them back into balance as soon as possible. I bet you've had some really interesting experiences with some of your clients. Um, could you maybe, with with necessary um, anonymity, walk us through maybe some of the more memorable experiences and what you've seen firsthand in terms of what these medicines could do? Yeah, I can, and I can also share some personal experiences as well. Please, yeah. Yeah, so I guess about four years ago, I, I personally reached a point in my life where um, I was at a bit of a crossroads. I'd I'd been a sexual assault, a rape counsellor for 15 years and, you know, had seen so much suffering with children, with women and men. And there was a lot going on in my, in my personal life as well, having children and doing a PhD and my psych training. And I, I reached a point where you know, mainstream supports were not, were not reaching, reaching me. And I went, yeah, went to the jungle uh, by myself and, and you know, engaged in ayahuasca at a legal centre. And for me, there was there's been nothing like it on, on the planet. No matter how much therapy I'd personally had, or different mindfulness techniques, or meditation, nothing was able to reach me like that medicine. And that's a medicine that I'm really connected with. Um, I think there's there can be a whole range of benefits from from these medicines. And and for me, it was. I guess that existential support that uh, mainstream psychology wasn't able to provide. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can imagine after 15 years as a rape counselor, you would have um, been exposed to so much trauma and pain that, um, yeah. Thank you for sharing such a personal experience. I've actually heard from several sources, similar experiences that, you know, one or two psychedelic assisted sessions achieve what months of therapy couldn't achieve and I guess reflecting back on that experience what do you think you you actually got out of it specifically my I I guess I had a pretty profound fear of fear of death in my life and a lot of my clients are the same they they have existential anxiety they have a fear of death and ayahuasca and and psilocybin you know Mm -hmm. Uh, are medicines that specifically can support people to face their fear of death mm-hmm. by, you know, I guess ex- confronting it and experiencing it in a way that typical psychotherapy can't really, really access. So, you know, I guess I can personally report that since participating in those ceremonies and, and facing my mortality and and really looking deep into spirituality, I've yeah don't have those same fears, you know, and. It's just yeah, an incredible feeling to be able to get on with life <laughs> and not be haunted by, by um, yeah, fear of death that so many people out there experience and Western society is not really geared to support those, those types of conversations. Yeah, wow. That sounds like a pretty profound experience. In terms of access to these medicines, do you need a diagnosis in order to be able to use them uh, and potentially have that kind of experience? At the moment, the way the, the the clinical trials and the protocols are designed are for yeah for major depression, obviously for, for psilocybin and PTSD for MDMA. But in Australia, there is a trial going at St Vincent's Hospital for psilocybin for the dying, because what they are you know are finding in in the data is that as people are approaching death and 
um, facing you know ex big existential questions that psilocybin can help them uh, have have peace with with their facing facing death at the moment that's not available for um, you know legally in Australia for the well but many many Australians are traveling overseas to legal centers to uh, you know to try these medicines for their own spiritual uh, I guess searching yeah, and I guess that's probably your own personal experience. You talked about going into the jungle, I'm assuming that's the Amazon. So which countries are these substances legal in? Oh, it's legal in many, many different countries. So, for example, um, some some countries in Europe, like Amsterdam, it's in Brazil, in Peru, some places in America, for example, you can legally take ayahuasca as part of a Santo Daime church. So there's there's churches all over America that you can take ayahuasca in so yeah there's lots of legal clinical trials happening around the world but also centers and retreats and we have a list on our mind medicine psych services webpage of the legal legal centers that we know have a a good reputation and are running a really ethical um, practice okay great we'll list that in our show notes as well i wanted to go back to psilocybin and magic mushrooms we obviously don't encourage people to get their baskets out and head out to their local parks to go find their own shrooms. I was wondering if you could maybe share your thoughts on why that could be a bad idea. Yeah, well, I am no expert in uh, in picking mushrooms, so I'm probably <laughs> to ask. And you know, it should be noted that the the psilocybin in the clinical trials is actually synthetic. So you know, I guess the reality is it's illegal in Australia, and that. You know, it holds for some people, it, you know, depending on, um, you know, their past and, and their situation, it can hold serious jail time, you know, similar to violent crimes and, and sexual assaults. And, you know, that's really, it's really devastating that a, a natural occurring substance can hold the same weight as a violent crime. But that's, that's where we're at in Australia at the moment. So just be really careful. And, you know, I guess they're, there are a lot of risks if you don't have the professional support, the safe, a safe home, you know, good good networks to help you help you ground. And I'd just really encourage you to um, contact our service if you need any support before or after to make sure you know that you're as safe as possible. In preparing for this conversation, I read some of Paul Stamets' work, and he is a mushroom expert. He actually um, discovered some of the magic mushroom varieties in the US and named his son after one of them. Um, so this guy's really, really into mushrooms. And when he talks about how to make sure you find the right one, um, he goes into a lot of the details on how similar they are to other types of mushrooms that are deadly and um, how easily you can get it wrong. And basically, if you have one of those deadly types of mushrooms, unless you really know what you're doing, they're very easy to pick, um, you basically face an agonizing death often over a series of days and there's sometimes nothing um, doctors or any kind of hospital ICU can do to help you because the poison's already taken root in your body. So I think for me that was a bit of a, um, a, bit of a shock realization when you think about how hard it is to get these mushrooms right unless you're truly an expert in it. Um, yeah, it's, it's not something I'd want to um, bet my life on. And, you know, that's only reflecting on the physical component of it. That's not talking about the potential risks of a serious psychedelic um, psychological event. Yeah, and it's the risk for young people because, you know, your, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25. 
So we're very we're often very impulsive when we're you know teenagers and young adults, and you know we we don't really see the potential ramifications for you know for, for toxicity for death, and people can get carried away. They can go mushroom picking. And it's just not something, yeah, not something to take lightly, not something to joke around with, and there can be serious effects. So that's why the clinical, the clinical legal pathway, and um, or going to you know a, a safe legal centre potentially overseas is is the way to go. Um, you you referred there to developing minds. A lot of people talk about using psychedelic experiences at pivotal points or points of transition in their life, often quite late in their life to deal with things like fear of death or dealing with significant trauma that that's occurred to them. What are your thoughts on the age spectrum and where you'd be a little bit more concerned about the use of psychedelics and where you think they might add more value? Yeah, well, there's, I'm not sure who said this quote, but it's one I I reflect on regularly is that before you can dissolve an ego, you need to have one. Huh. So, you know, there is a risk of someone 15, 16, 17, who, who doesn't have a developed ego. They don't know who they are in the world. They haven't uh, developed a sense of self agency values because uh, when that's dissolved and you're confronted with, you know, experiences that you can't even put into words, it can be very difficult to integrate back. So, you know, I guess everyone has, you know, in my opinion, the rights to freedom of consciousness. I'm not going to tell people not to do something, but I think, you know, with these medicines, they need to be revered. They need to be really respected and jumping in too soon can be very, very dangerous. So, you know, there's no harm in, in waiting till you've got a bit more of a sense of self before you're willing to dissolve it. I want to go back to your clinical experience where you, I guess you have seen people dissolve that sense of self and you've worked with them to get the lessons and the insights from that. Um, do, do you have any examples that you can think of or share of where that's yeah. worked really well? Yeah. I mean, a whole range of examples. I think people have utilized MDMA, particularly if they've had sexual abuse and typically in, in therapy, it's very challenging to talk about rape with a therapist without your body becoming very uh, triggered and dissociated and uh, with MDMA it's it, it calms the body and it's a it's an empathogen so it means that you're you open up to self-compassion for yourself and you're able to sit with uh, you know the pain and distress in a way that you're not able to in, in, in therapy so I've seen um, people report you know incredible growth after MDMA and, and uh, I guess tapping into an inner healer and an inner wisdom inside their body, which normally their body is their enemy. Their body's riddled with, you know, PTSD and dissociation. So um, that's just, you know, some examples around MDMA, the, the potential for um, being providing a container for people to talk about their trauma. Uh, with psilocybin, works with, you know, many people who've, who've used it after someone has died so a traumatic you know traumatic death or a grief and a loss and you know they've been propelled into existential anxiety and loss of meaning and you know in those psilocybin experiences being able to experience uh, I guess more more realities more different different levels of realities spirits uh, you know different experiences that is that have helped them to feel that they are more than their body which has been you know very uh, therapeutic for their for their grieving process. 
course, there's also, you know, people in the community that use uh, ayahuasca and have uh, done so for addiction. You know, they've been on a range of, you know, alcohol and drugs. And it's often interesting to think, you know, people can get off drugs by taking another drug. <laughs> As we say, it's getting off drugs by taking a medicine and a, a plant and a plant that's been used for, you know, hundreds of years all around the world and embedded in a rich culture. So I've seen many, many people um, come off really, really addictive drugs through through ayahuasca and psilocybin. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I could talk for hours about all the different examples, but, you know, I, I guess the people I work with, they've tried everything. They tried the med- medications. They tried psychotherapy. They tried you know, meditation, mindfulness, but they needed to experience beyond that. They needed to get beyond their mind you know, and really in, deeply engage with the mystery. And that's what these medicines can do. They can, they can open you up to possibilities that you would never have imagined. So apparently one of the neuroscientists working in London on psychedelic research gave Michael Pollan this analogy and he quotes it in his book. He says, think of your mind as a hill covered with snow and your thoughts are sleds that go down that hill. The more time that you ride on those sleds over time, the deeper those grooves become in the snow. And after a while, there's no way that you can go down the hill except in those grooves. Um, And then he talks about how psychedelics are like fresh snowfall that fill all those grooves. And now you can go down the hill in new paths. And it's such a powerful analogy. You can see how repetitive actions and modes of being like addictions could get you know this huge break with psychedelics so is there science and research that back up that sort of analogy yes subjectively and from my my personal experience and people i support absolutely but the the research is still evolving so we do know that there's potential for uh, um, addiction with ibogaine which is a african medicine so that's one that's that's used for for addiction and also psilocybin for alcoholism and for c- cigarette smoking and ayahuasca as well. And there's, there's uh, research emerging, which we need to watch, is um, the Global Ayahuasca Project um, in Australia. So the results from those studies will be available hopefully next year. And I'll give an example of someone who's utilised ayahuasca is that they were a heroin addict and when they... When they went into ceremony, they experienced what it was like to be their veins. The whole journey was almost experiencing the heroin going into their body at a very intense, visceral, you know, frightening level, and what it was like, yeah, what it was like for, for their body. And for some reason, that was enough. That was enough for them to stop because they they experienced it in a way that was so intense and so complex. And so much pain, there was a release. There was a, a, a confrontation with their behaviour wow. from a from a like a microcosmic point of view. Uh, and in this instance, did that person stop using altogether? Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've met many many people in the community and around the world who have u- utilised psilocybin and um, San Pedro as well, the cactus, ibogaine, and ayahuasca for for addiction and the the research is supporting that which is you know starting to occur around the world that um you know these medicines can have a really you know not only a deep cathartic release of trauma 
but also that it gives the person hope that they can be their own healer, that they can they can have a relationship with themselves and potentially, you know, a spiritual relationship with the world. So they're not needing that vice to self-soothe anymore. They're not needing, you know, heroin or, or cocaine or Valium, that they have, you know, tools within within themselves and also potentially a medicine community and medicine ceremony and the, the spiritual components that comes with participating in those yeah in those circles yeah it's a pretty amazing promise isn't it it feels like things are a bit upside down though i mean we've legalized and prescribed really addictive drugs and we've classified others that science has demonstrated holds this amazing promise as having no medical benefit it's not really a level playing field is it no and we've got the narrative backwards if you think that you know cigarettes are you know legal and very accessible even for young people and you know the research obviously they're toxic and addictive and you know cancers and disease as well as alcohol we know what alcohol does to society with family violence crime um, different types of illness so it you know i often think it's it's very interesting that people are often confronted when they see for example a a clip of an ayahuasca ceremony where people are in the dark and they they might be crying or they might be singing or releasing trauma and people find that very confronting yet you know you can walk to chapel street on a saturday night and people are on alcohol hurting each other you know assaulting each other vomiting yet that's legal that's normal you know no one really says anything about that yet when people gather together for the purpose of healing and uh, with intention and with you know integrity that that is uh shamed and stigmatized so we've got a long way to go we, we need to break down the stigma and really challenge you know the mainstream approach which you know legalizes really toxic medicines that are addictive and often people are on them for decades with minimal results that's that's legal and that's what's fueling a lot of the you know big pharma and not to knock big pharma they've obviously a lot of them are for the right reasons but we need to make room for these medicines which are cheaper and potentially safer and non-toxic non-addictive and having better results if someone's listening and they think i have tried everything or i know someone who's tried everything and they're, they're at their last last point you know they're not responding to normal antidepressants or normal talk therapy or whatever it is and they want to explore whether or not a psychedelic assisted therapy might be appropriate for them or their loved one or their significant person how do they do that given the current regulatory framework in australia so it varies state to state for example in victoria you can put in an application through the tga which needs to be you know backed by evidence and the support of a psychiatrist and the TGA might approve it. And we've had approvals within 48 hours. Once you get that approval, it needs to be then submitted to DHS who look at the case and say, yes, that even though this medicine is technically illegal in Victoria, under compassionate grounds, we will allow it to happen. So in Victoria, now it is is possible for this to occur if the TGA says yes and if DHS says yes, even though it's in uh, an illegal substance schedule. However, in Queensland and New South Wales, for example, even if the TGA says yes, there isn't the option for a compassionate okay. ground. So what we're doing is is we've created the t- uh, a submission to the TGA throughout Australia. 
people have spoken out from all, all levels of society demanding that the medicine is moved from schedule nine to schedule eight, which means that it's, it's clinical regulated and allowed. And that would then enable states like Queensland and, and um, New South Wales to permit it. If there is delays in that scheduling, what we will do is um, establish clinical trials so that even if it remains illegal in those states, that it will you know, ideally occur through a clinical trial process. So as you can see, it's, it's complex and multifaceted, but what we're encouraging yeah. people to do is if they, if, they, if they are interested in this therapy and they meet the criteria to get their evidence, their support network, their application in order and submit it to the TGA and then it's a, it's a holding and a wait while, while these state-by-state -state regulations are ironed out. And in the meantime, during that wait, waiting period, you can connect to Mind Medicine, you can join a chapter, you can be, be part of the community, you can prepare yourself with education, with, with music, with rituals, with uh, building friends, building a community, so that if, if you are eligible and the medicine does occur, you've already done a lot of the work beforehand. You've done a lot of the preparation, which is really key. So it's, it's not a waste of time. That time can be used to really, you know, therapeutically get you prepared and yeah, connect you with a wonderful community. Okay, that brings us to the end of our chat with Dr. Roy from Mind Medicine Australia. Coming up next, we bring you a multi-part segment on trauma. Our first conversation with psychologist Tara Hicks reflects on the fact that trauma is not what happened to you, it's your interpretation of what happened to you. Tara walks us through major and minor trauma and the therapy that aims to reduce or even remove the trauma by reassigning emotional meaning to a past event. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a review and a comment. We read all of our comments and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. Thanks so much and see you again soon.